Okay, slightly unusual um, talk in that we're here to ask for your feedback. Um, so Liv and I have recently started Effective Giving, and our aim is to help high net worth donors maximize the impact of their philanthropy, both th through providing them with information and various experts, and also through bringing them together in a community. Liv and I are hopefully going to be doing the rounds at various conferences and other relevant events to reach out to these people. And we're thinking about how to introduce EA. And there's lots of different ways in which we could do this. And we're going to trial one of them. And um, please take notes. And we'd really, really welcome your feedback afterwards. Great. OK, I will get started. So my colleague Liv and I are here today to talk to you about the potentially transformative power of major philanthropy. We'd like to take you through some of philanthropy's most startling success stories. We'd like to introduce a framework for trying to replicate some of these successes using essentially the same rationality that people make money with applied to giving that money away. And we'd also like to talk about why there aren't more people taking this approach to their giving and what we can do about that. But first, a little existential dread. So each of these little squares, which are all visible to you, represents a week. In which case, this is your life. Obviously, some of these weeks will be incredibly well spent. For example. But other huge chunks of time <laughs> probably just pass us by. I mean, hopefully not sort of in chunks like that, but um, that's a lot of life that's just going to pass us by. And you know, the obvious point, so blindingly obvious that we are often actually blind to it, is that barring some serious technological breakthroughs pretty soon, this is all we've got. This is all the time we've got to make the impact that we want to have on the world. And so we want to make these weeks count, you know, not all of them. Um, but we want them to add up to a meaningful, interesting life spent working on problems that matter and things that are valuable to us. This isn't always easy to do. Um, for example, even those of us born into the wealthiest countries on earth at the wealthiest time in history, um, with the ability to you know, accumulate more wealth than any of our ancestors could have done, could be tempted to spend that wealth on some pretty cool things. This is my best approximation of ridiculous things one can do with money. Um, but it seems that we're pretty good at getting used to these things. I'm not sure I would get used to that cat, but the science agrees. Fortunately, however, the science also agrees that one of the most effective ways to improve our own lives is working to improve the lives of others. So various studies have demonstrated that altruism not only makes us feel happier and live with a greater sense of meaning, it's also been linked to better physical health um, and more longevity, giving you perhaps a few more weeks in which you want to achieve those goals. And of course, all of this is sort of putting the cart before the horse, because if you think altruism can do great things for you, wait until you see what it can do for other people. Sorry. <laughs> So, I want to take you through some couple of examples 
of philanthropists and um, people working directly on problems where there was a truly outsized impact. This, for example, is Frederick Gates. This is his life. In 1897, um, summer of 1897, maybe not a lot of going on, Frederick Gates decided to read a book called The Principles and Practices of Medicine by William Osler. This book made it clear that people didn't actually know a lot at the time about the causes of various diseases. And Fred became pretty convinced that the study of medicine, scientifically, was an incredibly neglected area. He was lucky enough to have a relatively wealthy friend uh, by the name of John G. Rockefeller. That was helpful. And he mentioned this to his friend John over a conversation and convinced John that this was something that philanthropy could really make progress on. The Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research was founded shortly afterwards. That institute played pivotal roles in tackling diseases such as hookworm, yellow fever, and malaria. It went on to produce over 25 Nobel Prize winners, and the institute continues to exist today in the form of over 83 research laboratories. Another example, this is Norman. In 1942, Norman and his colleagues were tasked with improving crop yields in Mexico. Norman invented uh, something that he called miracle Mexican wheat, which was a type of dwarf wheat that was both disease resistant and extremely high yielding. This allowed him to uh, develop a model that increased production over fourfold. Mexico became self-sufficient in wheat production. The model was rolled out across the developing world, and by some estimates, over 240 million people were spared starvation as a result of Norman and his colleagues' research. In 1970, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for reducing the chances of conflict between India and Pakistan. Now, of course, these are very cherry-picked examples of times where philanthropy went extremely well. Not every grant goes like this. In fact, a tiny fraction of grants will have gone like this, and a huge number will have achieved nothing. But it does demonstrate the point that when we're able to take bets on risky new ideas and consider the big picture and think about which problems need working on, excellent things can happen. So Liv and I work at Effective Giving because we want to, we hope to, connect the next Fred or Norman with the next philanthropist, like John D. Rockefeller, or actually, we want to see what those connections achieve when they're made on purpose, when they're made at an age with vastly more economic and technological power than was available to either Fred, Norman, or Rockefeller, and when they're done with the explicit aim of achieving as much good as possible, finding the worst problems and finding the most promising solutions. We hope that if we get this right, perhaps your life could look something like this, And the effect of your life could be to improve the lives of many, many others looking forward into future generations. Okay, so what's the framework that's going to allow us to do this or that's going to help us? The framework that Liv and I found extremely compelling and that underlies essentially effective giving's methodology is uh, known as effective altruism. So effective altruism at its heart is the intellectual project of finding those actions that will do the most good for the least sacrifice. 
And it's also the practical project of actually taking those actions. So what's distinctive about effective altruism, or EA? There are countless problems. There are countless potential solutions. There are limited resources. And we need to ask ourselves, what approach should we take? Effective altruism says the approach should be something like follows. First of all, we're interested in maximizing the amount of good we do. So when we're evaluating a decision or a project or a proposal, the question is not, is this a good thing to do? But is this plausibly the best thing I could be doing with my resources right now? Taking into account, of course, the huge amount of uncertainty we have as to, to what is best. Secondly, it's about science, using the scientific method, rather than what feels good or what seems good, actually applying reason and evidence and rationality to figure out what might be the most good. And thirdly, it's about being impartial. So when we say we want to improve lives, that means we want to improve the lives of everyone, treating everyone equally, no matter whether they're socially close to us, physically close to us, whether they exist now or in future generations. Now, effective altruism is less than a decade old, but already there's some considerable steam behind this approach. So GiveWell, a research organization which finds high-impact giving opportunities, moved over $117 million last year to its top charities. 80,000 Hours, an organization which helps people make, find high-impact careers, has resulted in over 2,400 plan changes last year. And the Open Philanthropy Project, which advises the foundation Good Ventures on which grants will accomplish the most good, made over $100 million worth of grants last year. And in addition to that, the EA movement has been associated with the birth and growth of a number of institutions. Um, for example, the Global Priorities Institute, which is now based at the University of Oxford. So a huge amount of work has been done in EA to date in fields ranging from mathematics to economics to philosophy to computer science. So I'm just going to limit myself to saying two things about it. Firstly, why it's timely, and secondly, why it might be important. So this is a graph of world GDP, um, although that should not be DP and should be world product um, over time. So for most of history, everyone was extremely poor. And the idea of realistically changing things the other side of your country was unthinkable, let alone the other side of the world at the touch of a button. Then this happened. The Industrial Revolution was perhaps the most transformative event in recorded history. World economic progress shot up, but over the long term, so <coughs> life expectancy, energy use per person, percentage of people living in a democracy. And the pretty basic point here is that although it doesn't feel like it, we're living in a very strange time. And this strange time brings with it new opportunities um, to solve problems such as poverty or certain diseases that may have seemed totally intractable not that long ago. But it also brings with it whole new classes of problems, the problems that result from very, very rapid technological development. And it's plausible that the wealthiest people in the wealthiest countries at the wealthiest time are now more important than ever in terms of making decisions that are in line with our values going forwards. Because what we do with our wealth matters now. 
This is just an example of how much. So taking charity as an example, most people tend to think that charities look something like this. So the average charity is pretty good. A great charity is better than the average charity. Maybe it's about one and a half times better. In fact, perhaps contrary to this intuition, we have reason to believe that the really, really best charities are over 100 times more effective than the average charity. This is supported by a number of lines of evidence. Some of them are theoretical models. Some of them are empirical. Um, I'll go over a couple of the empirical pieces of evidence here. First of all, it seems quite reasonable to say that most interventions don't work, which is um, an important point. For example, David Anderson, who is director of evidence-based policy at the Laura and John Arnold Foundation, did a big study in 2015 looking into huge range of interventions that had been assessed with randomized control trials. He found that about three quarters of them had little or no effect. However, of the, even those that do have an effect, it seems plausible to say that most of the value of our investments in charities come from a very small number of interventions. For example, GiveWell has estimated that an organization called the Against Malaria Foundation can provide a benefit equivalent to one year of healthy life for approximately $100. Carposi sarcoma, which is a skin condition associated with HIV, if we wanted to create a benefit equivalent to a year of healthy life funding a solution to that problem, it's estimated it would cost something closer to $50,000, which is um, orders of magnitude more. And of course, both of these things are taken from the realm of global health in the developing world, which is already a pretty cost-effective area to focus on. If we shift and we look at the cost per life saved equivalent, and we include the developed world, this contrast becomes even more stark. So Givewell estimates that the Against Malaria Foundation, by distributing insecticide-treated bed nets, can produce a benefit equivalent to saving a life for around $3,200. Some US government departments, uh, when they're deciding how to allocate their resources to, to save lives, are willing to invest over $7 million in safety infrastructure to save the equivalent of one person's life. Now, the point here, the narrow point, perhaps, is about which health interventions to fund or safety interventions to fund. But the much broader point is that we live in this strange time where some actions are very plausibly hundreds or thousands of times more effective than others. And this should give us pause, and we should think about the broader question of, well, given that we're living in this very weird world, what problems should we be focusing on to start with? I'd like to introduce a framework for thinking about that question. It's a pretty simple framework, and it says that you'll have more impact on a problem the larger it is, the more solvable it is, and the more neglected it is. Larger because if the problem's bigger, we'll have more impact when we do solve it. Solvable because we can make more progress with the same effort in a solvable cause area. And neglected because the less investment that has already happened in an area, the more we can expect to sort of come in and find some low-hanging fruit. This framework is, is not immutable. 
and hasn't been around for very long, so it's conceivable it will be updated. It also doesn't have any conclusions baked into it. However, researchers do seem to have converged on a number of areas that might be particularly pressing problems. For example, global health, um, although it's a very complex area and there's a lot of research, it seems there are still cases where we can just fund interventions that are cheap and that are known to work, and that the more funding you put into those interventions, the more lives you will save. So this is an example of a very solvable cause area in some cases. Another area is ending factory farming. 100 billion land animals every year are farmed, the vast majority of them in torture-like conditions on factory farms. In 2017, we spent more going to see a movie called Sausage Party about a speaking sausage than we did on all organizations working to end factory farming. This is an incredibly neglected area. And then there's a whole host of areas um, that are pressing, that fall under this sort of broad category of reducing existential risk. That is, reducing the chance of an event that would eradicate intelligent life on Earth or permanently or drastically curtail its potential. We can see, looking back over the last century, that as we uh, progressed economically and technologically so quickly, for the very first time, we came across risks that posed an existential threat. Nuclear war, for example, being, being the obvious example, and uh, things such as extreme climate change, so warming over 10 degrees. And as we continue on this very rapid journey, we should expect over the next century to face new types of these risks. And when we look onto the horizon, some plausible candidates seem to be things such as biosecurity. It seems reasonable that we will at some point develop the ability to uh, synthesize a virus that is highly contagious, has a long incubation period, and is extremely deadly. And these are things we can, we can do about this at present. It's also plausible that over the next century, artificial general intelligence might be developed. And several experts think that ensuring the goals of a superintelligent general intelligence are aligned with the goals of humans might actually be a very challenging problem. So there are a huge number of problems we should solve, and they're not all captured here. And we don't potentially have unlimited time to solve them. And um, unfortunately, although we have had these rocket boosters attached under us in terms of economic progress and technological progress, we've pretty much got the same brains that we did back as cavemen on the savannah. And yeah, as you can see, this is savannah. There's a tree in the background. Um, don't have trees anymore. Our ancestors, when they had to deal with problems, those problems will have been pretty obvious and in front of them didn't require a huge amount of careful consideration. In terms of thinking in numbers, our ancestors wouldn't be concerned about orders of magnitude. Things would be pretty measurable. If there was a problem and somebody needed helping, it wouldn't be great if we spent a long time making detailed calculations about this. People wouldn't really reward us for this kind of behavior. <laughs> and we have these same brains, and they let us down in the same ways when it comes to philanthropy today. For example, we're a pretty generous bunch. Um, over nine out of 10 Americans donate at some point during a calendar year. 85% of them in surveys say they care about the performance of where they donate to. 
did make me wonder about the 15% who are just like, nah, don't care what happens. However, only about 30% do any research on the organisation that they're planning to give to. Only about 20% research the performance specifically, and only about 3% of donors will compare different charities to see where their donation might do the most good. And perhaps unsurprisingly as a result, our giving isn't focused on those problems where it's needed most. So in 2017, over $410 billion were donated to charity. About a quarter of that went towards religion, uh, most of which watched religion in uh, people's local areas. About 15% went to education, and unfortunately education was one of those areas which performed particularly poorly on an assessment of whether interventions worked or not. Only about a billion dollars went to pandemic preparedness, which is one of the most pressing global existential risks that we might face. And actually, pandemic preparedness was one of the most well-funded pressing areas. So we're not donating where we need to. And that's the bad news. The good news is that researchers are increasingly interested in these questions of why, why don't we behave more effectively when so much is at stake. I'd like to pass you over to my dear friend and colleague, Liv Burinow, who's going to talk to you about why we don't give more effectively and what we can do about that. Liv is one of the UK's and world's most successful poker players. Um, she's won several million dollars in various tournaments and has won both the World Series and the European Poker Tour. In 2014, Liv co-founded an organization called Raising for Effective Giving, which brought together a number of professional poker players who collectively pledged a percentage of their winnings to the world's most effective charities. Hand you to over to Liv now to talk about that. Hey folks, so thank you so much for that, Natalie. Uh, I'm Liv, and yes, I have been a poker player for the last 10 years. Here's me doing my thing, looking very pensive and a bit stressed, I imagine. Um, and yeah, poker, I mean, I'm sure pretty much everyone here knows the basic rules of poker, um, because it's ultimately a game of rational decision-making. In order to be a professional, it, you have to be able to think in terms of things like return on investment and your hourly rates, cost effectiveness, that kind of thing. And then it also teaches you to become a master of your own mind because you'll be sitting in high pressure situations where you're not sure about the relative strength of your cards and you'll have every motivation to, to, to try and believe that your opponent has worse cards than you. So you have to learn how to sort of objectively evaluate evidence and not let your own sort of desires and beliefs and, and biases get in the way. And yet what I find fascinating, at least for me, was that despite this many years of this, of this kind of training, of like living a very effective life in my professional and personal life, was that my charity was the most ineffective thing ever. Like it, basically all I would do is I would see some kind of advert on the TV or uh, read something in a magazine, get really, really upset, uh, usually about something to do with some poor animals being mistreated somewhere, and then just donate immediately to that charity feel a bit better, and then that was the end of it. And so what I want to talk about today is kind of these two fundamental questions of this like weird dichotomy that I had going on in myself. Why didn't I donate effectively? 
and what specifically changed my mind. So on this first point, I suspect this was a combination of two things. One, I didn't really know how to donate effectively, but more crucially, I didn't actually really care to. Unfortunately, uh, some researchers at Oxford University have been looking into this sort of general phenomenon of why people don't donate effectively. Um, and their research supports my hypothesis because it seems to boil down to two key areas. We have information problems and motivation problems. And on this information point, as Natalie mentioned, we now know that the difference between uh, the very best charities from the average isn't just a little bit. It's actually many, many orders of magnitude. And yet this is relatively new information. It wasn't even until the 1990s that governments and aid agencies even started testing the efficacy of their programs. And, well, this, this information hasn't really become widespread. I mean, that's obviously what we're all trying to do here at Effective Altruism. We're trying to get the message out there. But otherwise, Joe Schmoes, like me, we just don't have access to this information. But then secondly, when we do get hold of the information, our brains aren't hardwired hard to process it very well, as Natalie demonstrated with the, with the lions and so on. We're, we're still living with our savannah brains, and they're not very good at dealing with vast amounts of data and orders of magnitude and so on. Um, a classic example of a bias is scope and sensitivity, which is basically how our internal feelings don't accurately correlate with very large numbers. Like, if I was to say to you there's a thousand sweet fluffy bunnies living absolutely terrible lives on a fur farm somewhere, you're going to feel bad about that, hopefully. But if I tell you there's actually a million of them having that, you'll probably feel a little bit worse. But will you actually feel a thousand times worse? No, we can't do that. But technically, we, we should. If we were rational agents, we should feel a thousand times worse because it's a thousand times more lives that are living in suffering. And then additionally, uh, a, a, a sort of stumbling block we tend to have is that we often focus on the wrong things. A classic one of these is the idea of overhead. Um, we often hear people saying, oh, well, this charity is really good because it's super efficient. They spend no money on overhead. And this isn't necessarily the most important metric. For example, if we imagine we have $50,000 um, and we, want, we have the choice between two charities that are working on the same problem. Now you've got charity A that spends, uh, is, is very efficient, spends only 10% on overhead and ends up helping 10 people. Or charity B, which spends 50%, so is actually much less efficient, but ends up with the same amount of money, but because of better practices, better methods, and so on, ends up helping 100 people. So actually, charity B, despite being less efficient, is 10 times as effective. And ultimately, it's that effectiveness that matters, because why were we donating in the first place? We wanted to help people, so surely we want to help as many people as possible with our money. So what about the uh, second reason that we don't give effectively? This, this idea of like with me, where I didn't really seem to care to. Well, to think about this, we need to look at the sort of psychological drivers that drive us to give to any charity in the first place. First of all, we have these sort of positive emotions we get. Because when we do good, we feel good. And this makes us feel, this gives us a positive emotion that kind of is like a, a warm glow, uh, which can be very powerful because it motivates us to do more altruistic things. And then additionally, we have sort of push factors in that when we see someone on the street 
or read about it, whatever it might be, uh, who's suffering, we empathise with them. But that gives us a negative feeling too. And so when we do something, when we donate or whatever we do to try and help them, that alleviates some of the suffering that we are experiencing too. Um, and this was certainly the case with me, with my very reactionary giving that I used to do. You know, I would see some terrible thing, cry a bunch, give some money, and then I'd feel a bit better. But as we know, reactionary donations rarely align with effectiveness because effective giving requires a lot of sort of slow, careful consideration and deliberation. And so it misses out on many of these very strong emotional motivators. And then on top of that, many effective causes, like the ones Natalie showed earlier, are things that are sort of going along in the background all the time, like factory farming and global poverty. And so they're, they're not especially emotionally salient compared to something like a disaster, because the media will always talk about something like that. But because it's going on all the time, we just don't hear about it. So again, it misses out from that sort of emotion, emotional boost. But for some good news, I've, I've at least personally found that over time, since learning about effective giving, effective altruism, I've actually gotten my emotions to update so that they do correlate with, effect, with the more effective giving. Basically, the, more, the better I know that I've researched where I give my donation to, the genuinely better and happier and more inspired I am to do more, I feel. And then there's also an additional motivating factor that we should probably talk about. And that's the idea of reputation. Oops, sorry. There it is. Yeah, so with reputation, um, because like it or not, we like to signal our goodness to others. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, because when, when we do announce that we have publicly given to somewhere, that's more, more likely than not going to encourage others, our friends or fans or whoever, to also donate. And so that creates a multiplier effect on your money. And that's a very good thing. But at the same time, evidence has shown that us humans are a weird bunch. We tend to, we tend to more socially reward people who demonstrate sort of spontaneous empathy and acts of kindness than we do people who are more deliberate and sort of just continuous in their giving. So again, that's a motivating factor that gets missed out. But fortunately, there is a solution to that that I found, and that is to surround myself with people who are also effectiveness-minded, because then I'll get that sort of peer support from when I do it. So back to that second question then. What actually changed my mind? Well, in all honesty, it was meeting people like Natalie. Uh, it was in 2014 when I had been playing poker for quite a while and started to get itchy feet a bit. And I wasn't alone. A couple of other poker players felt the same. You know, we were playing this great fun game, but it was very zero sum. And we were all starting to wonder, like, is this, is this how we're going to leave our mark on the world or can we do something better? And we were introduced to a team of Swiss EAs who um, quite literally just blew us away. Their arguments were so compelling and their evidence was so strong and they had all these amazingly fantastic thought experiments, which I wish I could go into today, but we don't have time for. Um, and ultimately, they spoke my language. They, they spoke in the same sort of poker player language of rationality and evidence. And we were so convinced that we then started this organization that Natalie mentioned, Raising for Effective Giving. And it's been more successful than we could ever have imagined. Over four years, it's moved $7 million to the charities. 
And now I'm excited to say that I'm involved in Effective Giving. I know the names are very similar. It is a different organization. Um, but it's ultimately looking to do the same thing, but just on a much, much larger scale. We're basically building a peer network of philanthropists who are looking to achieve the maximum positive impact with their lives. And we'll overcome these information problems by connecting you with the best researchers in, the field, in their fields, the top quality research that they are producing, and then we're also going to be offering these training courses that will delve much more deeply into some of these like cognitive skills that we touched on today. And then we'll also hopefully overcome these motivation problems by creating a, a community of intellectuals who hold each other to the highest possible standards of thinking. And so if this does sound appealing to you and you think you could fit in with this group, then please do get in touch with us at the email here. And yeah, we truly hope you'll join us in attacking these the world's biggest problems and by funding the most promising solutions to them. Thank you.